if you have your Bibles with you, which I hope you do. If not, there's uh, Bibles provided in the seat back in front of you or underneath you. It sounds like an airplane announcement just there. But we have Bibles underneath the seats if you need them. Um, and we're going to be in Matthew 18, so you can start turning there. The question I want to propose to you today is why is the church in America so unholy? Why do so many churches look and act like the rest of the world? Why is that? What is the reason? Now, many people will say, well, it's because they don't preach hell. It's, they don't preach enough Jesus. They don't do enough social action. And there's all these different reasons as to why the church in America is so unholy. Our topic today is membership and church discipline. So we've been talking about membership now for several weeks. About This will be our sixth, sixth and last. And then we jump into the wonderful story of Joshua where we left off a few, about a year ago. And so we're talking about membership and church discipline. And I think the reason, one of the main reasons, maybe the, the most pressing reason why the church in America is so unholy is because there's a lack of church discipline. I think this is one of the main reasons why the church in America looks like the rest of the world. Now, this may take you aback a little bit, and you may think, well, wait a second, discipline. No one loves discipline. We don't want to talk about church discipline. But the more you study church discipline, I think the more your joy for Christ should be elevated. Because many churches will preach against sin, don't they? I mean, many churches do that well. They do a good job of preaching against sin. They do a good job of preaching against sin, but then doing nothing about it. They say they're against it. The people in the pews or in the, in the chairs or in wherever they're sitting will be against it, but they don't do anything about it. And I think that's the, the ultimate reason. Now, I'm not saying that churches are perfect, that there's going to be any perfectly holy church, because if there is, you're going to ruin it, right? But there are churches that are striving to be holy, and that's what we're called to do. And so when we neglect church discipline, we are neglecting the main means that Christ has given us for dealing with sin in our congregation. And for us to have complete joy in Christ means we have to be in conformity to Him. To be in conformity to Christ means we have to obey Him. We have to follow His commands. And so for us to have true joy and true happiness, we have to be in conformity to Christ. So here we go, dealing with with sin. And really, this is a family discipline, a church discipline matter. This is family work. Just like you would have family discipline with your children, so God has given us directions on how to have discipline. When you think about family discipline, Hebrews 12, 9 through 10 really explains it to us. It says, furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share in his holiness. So there's a, here we go. We're leading in. So church is a family. Families have discipline. A family that does not have discipline is an unruly family, and we don't want to be around them. Isn't that true? When kids are undisciplined in the house, it's miserable. It's not fun. It's not pleasant. When they're screaming and shouting and children are just not behaved listening to their parents, it's a disaster. Families function on three things, love, training, and correction. If any of them are missing, it will fail to function properly. So a church needs teaching and correction and love. And our correction needs to both be internal and external, right? We want our children to be self-disciplined. And if they're not self-disciplined, we enact external discipline, right? There's two levels of it. So the same thing with the church. We want self-discipline against sin, but at the same token, there needs to be some form of external discipline. Jesus has always been clear on the subject of sin. In fact, Jesus speaks to us in our passage today, and he wants his church, his bride, to be pure and spotless. So he has given directions on how sin is to be dealt with. And so we have the subject of church discipline. And that's what our passage today says. So go ahead and be there in Matthew 18. And we'll be in verse 15. And we'll go all the way to 20. But we're really going to be focusing in on uh, 15 through 17. 
And so it says this, If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Let's pray. Father, we approach this subject of church discipline, understanding that you have a purpose for it. You have placed this in Scripture. Your Son, Jesus Christ, has proclaimed it to us, and we are to obey. So, Father, I pray that as we study this text together, that we would see the beauty in what is being asked of us, that we would see the value, and that we, too, would have a hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we would seek to obey and to follow your will because we know that's what is best for us. Father, help our church as we studied membership and we understand the complexity of such a, su a subject, that we see it as clear in Scripture that there needs to be some form of accountability, some form of mechanism to understand how we are to operate together as a family. Father, I pray that we would be, grow stronger because of this series, that we would seek to be holy as you are holy. Father, be with us, guide us as we study. Open our ears to hear and our eyes to see. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as you can see, there's a step-by-step -step instructions that Christ has given us, isn't it? Like, this is very clear. In fact, it's so basic. It's like ABCs. It's very simple. The problem is, a lot of us will say, that sounds nice, but I'm not going to tell my brother when he sins against me. How many times do our kids start smacking each other before talking it out. And we have to go in there and say, why did you hit your brother or sister? Well, they looked at me funny, right? And, and you have to walk through and say, well, did you tell them not to look at you funny? Well, I didn't think to th say that. I just slapped them. And many times in our churches, we do the same thing, or we approach it really harshly, and we start sanctioning people. We'll say, well, someone said something mean, so I'm going to just go ahead and not talk to them ever again. But that's not what we're called to do here. And so we have a way to deal with sin in the body of Christ. And in particular, this is talking about a local gathering, a local congregation, a, a church family, because you see here it's talking about a local family. So in our church context, this is how we deal with sin within our family. God has always been concerned with dealing with the holiness of his people. We have Leviticus 11.44, where he told the people of Israel to follow these strict standards of holiness so that they could reflect God's glory. So when we fail to do what God has said here, we fail to be obedient to the Lord, which means we are not being holy. So why does the church have to be holy? Why can't we just do what we want to do? All right, everyone's welcome. Have you heard that before? Everyone can just walk in the door and, and you're just welcome. And that's true to an extent. It's when you become members, when you become a part of that church family, that we have to recognize we cannot allow sin to abide. We cannot let, you would not want a pastor who is committing adultery and then comes up here and preaches a sermon. You would be aghast. You would want, not want a, a pastor who is stealing money from the church to preach a sermon. Why do we think that's okay for a member to do that? It's not. Or what about a, a man who brings his girlfriend to the same church his wife and children go to? We would be aghast. We would be sick. So if there's no membership, then there's no way to deal with it, really, is there? You could say, well, that's wrong. And that person could look at you and say, well, your church has no authority over me. I do what I want. And so membership is a means for the holiness of his people. We have strict commands given to Israel and later to the Church of Christ in 1 Peter 1.16, basically saying, be holy as I am holy. And so that's our command. So let's, let's look at how we do it. There's four steps to, to reconciliation. 
or to dealing with sin or conflict in the church. And this really works well for two things. It works well for dealing with sin and dealing with conflict because conflict is exhausting. It wears you out. If you have a, a fight with your spouse, how long does it take for you to deal with it? The longer it takes, the more exhausted you are through the process. So here are the four steps. I'm going to go real quick, and then we'll look at them. Number 15 talks about going. The principle here is he who knows goes. Step one is go. Step two is bring. Step three is tell. And step four is remove or restore. So first 15 says, if, right there, we have a marker. When I was in the army, there was a thing we would use on our maps. They're called phase lines. So if an enemy crossed a certain phase line, then that would trigger a certain action from us. Same thing, if I sent my one team across this phase line, Alpha, then phase line Bravo, another team would move, right? There's a way to control it. So the same way is this word if. So if, you, if, if what? If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. That's the trigger. If someone sins against you, what do you got to go do? You first you go, right? You go tell him his fault. And there are other passages in Scripture that says, if you know someone has something against you, you go. So who, he who knows goes. It's very simple. If you have something against someone or you know someone has something against you, you go and tell them. This, this word is, is, is very simple. It means you go directly. It's a face-to-face -face conversation if possible. There's no time for gossip or slander or let me tell five, five, 15 other people really quick about what this person did to me. How often does that happen? Someone hurts your feelings, says something to you that you don't like, maybe, or you thought was harsh. Maybe the pastor looks at you funny, and you, he hurts your feelings. So then you go and tell every other person that you know about how mean the pastor is before coming to the pastor and say, you know, you looked at me funny. That's not what's being told to do here. You go directly. And this is hard, guys. This is, I'm not saying this is easy, right? Because the last thing you want to do is go to talk to someone who hurt your feelings or hurt you or even has conflict with you. So... The first step in resolution is go. So how do we go? Well, Jesus, first off, is drawing from Old Testament um, theology. He's drawing from Old Testament passages. Leviticus 19.17 says, Do not harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke your neighbor directly, and you will not incur guilt because of him. Did you see that? Rebuke him directly. Do not harbor hatred hatred. So how many of you immediately, once I said, he who sins against you, you need to go tell him, has someone pop in their mind? If you did, that means you need to go talk to them. This is the first step. Now, remember, this is a long, several step process. So you may have done this first step already. So let's go ahead and continue to think about it. So who is it? If your brother, so who is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about our physical, parental brothers? Or is he saying Christians in general? He said, if your Christian brother does something against you. So that's the first person. And what is it that he does against you? Well, he sins against you. It needs to be a sin. Is it just something you don't like? That's something you can consider. Do I overlook this or do I go directly? But if this person sins, then we need to deal with it. It has to be a sin. Not, I don't like it, or maybe there's a preference thing. Well, I don't like the song that Gary chose to worship music with. Well, was it a sin to sing that song? No, then shut up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, be quiet. You don't have to deal with that. It has to be a sin, right? So think about this carefully. When someone sins against you, make sure it's a sin. That's a, that's a key thing. Because a lot of times we have preferences, don't we? And we can bring our preferences to the table and say, you know, hey, in that song, it said something about God that I don't agree with. It says God is like this. And I don't think that's a true statement. That's a, a, a reasonable thing to bring forward. But remember, you're not coming to it like a sin issue. You're coming to it as a preference issue. So you go and tell. And this word means to expose or convict or admonish or bring it to light. So 
Let's say you see someone in the congregation sinning. Maybe you see someone at a restaurant having a uh, getting drunk. They're just trashed in the in the restaurant, and you go over and you talk to them, and you could tell they're trashed. So then you go and tell everybody in the church about it, right? No, you deal with that person directly once they're sober, right? Obviously, you have to do it once they're sober. But you say, listen, the Bible says clearly we are not to be drunks. Yet I saw you drunk. I talked to you drunk. How can I help you not do this anymore? Right? There's a direct way. Or let's say someone lies to your face. They tell you something and it's a blatant lie and you've discovered it. What do you do? Well, you go tell them. Say, listen, you lied to me. Now, obviously, we know what happens. And let's go ahead and see what happens if your brother listens to you. Verse 15 says, you tell him his fault between you and him and everyone else. No, it says alone. You and him alone. This is hard, right? No one wants to confront someone alone. Now, there are certain things that you should not be alone with a person that sinned against you. We know such things like rape or anything like that. You probably don't want to go one-on-one with the person that did that to you. You would want to have more help and protection, right? But what we're talking about here are these the typical sins that happen. So you and him alone deal with it. And it says, if he listens to you, if he heeds what you're saying, which usually typically means he apologizes, right? He asks for forgiveness. It says you have won your brother or gained your brother or brought him back from the sin. This is, this is how you prevent apostasy. In fact, Jesus just got done talking about cutting off your own hand if it causes you to sin. He says, gouge out your eyeball if it causes you to sin. He is serious about sin. And so how do we keep other people in our church family from sin? Guess what? It's tough. We tell them, you are sinning. You are in sin. You have sinned against me or you are sinning. And that's not fun, is it? No one likes to be the one to go and say, guess what? I'm going to rain on your party. You are sinning. But this is what we're called to do as brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's the first thing. Confront someone. How many times have you talked to your children and said, that's wrong? What do they, what do, they do? Wasn't me, that was that other kid. Right? It wasn't me. I didn't do it. Or they fess up to an extent, but they're not willing to apologize. So that's what could happen when you confront this person. So the second step we see in verse 16 is to bring. It says in verse 16, but if you won't listen, which means this is maybe an ongoing conversation. You had a couple conversations with this person. You've tried to work it out individually, and they won't listen. So it says, take or bring one or two others with you. So what does this mean? One or two others. So you bring everybody that you know as a posse to come get this person and tear them down, right? No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying bring one or two reliable witnesses. That means maybe someone that they would listen to. Maybe someone they would respect, not your buddies who are going to pound them down if they don't listen, right? So you're approaching this person. You're bringing one or two witnesses. Old Testament teaching, Deuteronomy 19.15, one witness cannot establish any iniquity or sin against a person, whatever that person has done. A fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Think about that. Two or three witnesses. So you are now establishing facts. And those witnesses may sit there and say, you know what? You don't have a case, right? Because I'm enlisting. So let's say Brother Augie and I get into an argument. And I go and I talk to Augie and he's like, well, I didn't have an argument with you. You have an argument with me. And I'm like, okay, well, let me talk to the elders. So I bring Barney with me and I bring Gary and the other Gary and all three of us, all four of us go. And we talk to Augie and they listen to me and they're like, Matt, that's pretty petty. You really don't have a case here. And I would have to apologize to Augie for my argument, right? Or they could listen and they say, you know, Augie, you really did not act properly in this manner. We need to help you fix it. And so this is the process, right? This makes sense. This is a clear way. It's not fun because who wants to have to say, hey, I need uh, two people to come help me confront so-and-so with their sin? 
Everyone's like, well, I'm not going to get near that. That's not my business. But guess what? It is the church's business. It is our business. If we truly want to be a congregation that loves God, has joy in Christ, and is holy. So, you have confronted the person and the two responses that are typical, right? Outright denial or excusing it away. Well, I was just having a bad day, so I got drunk. Or you were just a big fat jerk, so I was a jerk to you, right? There's that, those are typically the ways people respond. So the next step, right? We talked about it, bring one or two people. So remember, one or two other witnesses. What do you think is implied here by that? The smallest group possible. So once again, we're trying to keep it small and local. We're not blowing this up. So let's say there is an issue. You don't walk to the front of the sanctuary and make an announcement. I want everyone to know I saw Augie drunk this week. Right? No, that's not what we're doing. We are having... I'm beating up on Augie just because I like him. And so listen, we have to do this with the smallest group possible. These people have to be people of integrity. These are not the town gossips arming up together to go and cause a problem. I, I watched a, a TV show about a lady who saw something happen, and she's like looking at the police officer like with her mean, you know, her nose down here like this, and she's like, it took you 45 minutes to come down here and deal with this trash can issue, right? And the police officer had just gotten done with like a crime scene, right? And, and so it's like the busybodies who always want to get up in everybody's business. That's not who you want. You want men or women of integrity to be witnesses to this. Because this is what's going to happen. There's going to be more steps, possibly. So, you want people of integrity, and you lay out your case, present evidence of the sin that was done against you. Let's give an example. Let's say someone says something insensitive to you, and we're going to use the most the silliest example we can possibly think of. Or at least I think it's silly. You guys probably won't. Oh, you have gained some weight. You walk in, they're shaking hands, and they look at you and say, oh, you've gained weight. Now your feelings are hurt, right? You're like, well, I don't look that. But what a mean thing for them to say. And maybe your feelings are so hurt that you're thinking about it at night, and you're dwelling on it, and so you just can't overlook it, right? Because most of the time you can just overlook it. People are, are weird. We know this. But for some reason, it's just bothering you. So after some time of prayer, you find the person and say, hey, you said X, it hurt my feelings. That's it. And that person could respond in two ways. So you know what? You're, you're right. I was, I was thinking about something else, and I just was real insensitive. I am so sorry. Right? Problem solved. We don't have to bring the whole church in on this matter. Now... They could say, well, it's true. You are getting fat. If they do that, well, what do you do? So if the apology is done, the steps are done, right? We don't have to go any further. But if it's not done and the problem has not been resolved and they buckle down, then we have to move forward. Now, remember, if the problem is resolved, if they've asked for forgiveness and you have granted forgiveness, this transaction of forgiveness... That means you say, I am not going to bring this up again or hold it against you. Once you have forgiven someone, it should be done. Now, it's not forgive and forget, but it is, I forgive you, I will not bring it up. So, after you get this apology from this person, that doesn't mean you run down to the kitchen and you tell all the other ladies about how this person called you fat and you confronted them and they said it was... So remember that because these are all steps because then, let's say you go and tell everybody after this forgiveness. Well, guess what? Now you've sinned against your brother or sister, and now we have to go through the process again. So consider these things. So apology is done, problem is over. But let's say they buckle down in their meanness. So you gather up a person or two and confront them again. And you tell them, you said X, it hurt my feelings. Now hopefully the person at this point will see the seriousness of what they've done. Because some people are just insensitive in, in general. They don't mean to be mean or spiteful, but it's possible, right? And so that two other people come with you and you said, you said X. Did you say X? Yes, I said X. Well, guess what? You have hurt her feelings. What do you have to say about that? I'm sorry. 
And it's kind of like you do with your children, right? Did you punch Edward in the face? Yes, I did. Why did you punch him? Well, he was jumping on my bed when I was trying to sleep. Okay, let's have a conversation, right? And we walk through the process. This is how it works in the family of God. It means we don't gossip. It doesn't. We don't slander. We don't be unforgiving. And if we are forgiving, we don't take that forgiveness and then throw it in the trash and start to trash mouth other people. We have to think through this process. And so it's really silly, isn't it? But how often does unconfronted problems lead to a more serious issue? How often does it an unconfronted problem lead to more serious issues? I'm thinking about um, those who have been convicted of of different crimes. It starts out with something small. They didn't get caught, so they steal something bigger, and then they steal something bigger, and then it goes and it escalates, right? Same thing with drugs or alcohol or, or any other thing that can, can capture us. So we've got to deal with it at the root. We've got to deal with it right away. What about factions in the church? I'm faction so-and-so. I'm against fat shaming. I'm faction so-and-so. I'm all for fat shaming. The next thing you know, we have two factions in the church because two ladies went like this and didn't deal with it properly. Right? That's what we see in Philippians where Paul says, I urge Udia and Syntyche to get along together. Right? And so that's what we have to consider. So little things can blow up into big things if we don't follow these steps of reconciliation. Jesus did not just say something nice and have it written down for us to think about it and not do anything with it. So this is the process. So now we're at step three. Let's say the two or three witnesses came and they tell the church, or they he doesn't pay attention to those three people. So it says now to tell the church, which really means a larger group. So Jesus is giving this lesson, explaining this. Now think about this. It's, it's, it's between two parables. The first parable is a parable of the lost sheep, and the second parable is the parable of the unforgiving servant. That's important. I don't have time to unpack, but read those parables and see why it relates to this. So, you tell the larger group the assembly. So in the Greek, this word church, the ekklesia, or the assembly, the gathering, is a group of people who meet together for a purpose. Now, back at this time, Jesus had not quite yet established the church, right? That wasn't until Pentecost, until Acts. But a couple of chapters before, he talked to Peter, and he said, I'm going to build the church as, with you as the cornerstone or, or as a stone in the church. So, so he already has used this word, church. So this is a, a future-looking Jesus. He's already knowing church is going to happen, and this is how you deal with it. So you tell the larger group, the assembly. This is really the most uncomfortable part, in my opinion. I think this is the least comfortable thing to do. Because who wants to come up here and say, well, Joe and, or so-and-so did this, and unfortunately we've had to remove him from our roles. No one wants to do that. That's not the purpose or the hope of any pastor. But let's listen to what we have to do. In fact, before we go there, what about the world? How does the world see that? First off, if you're in a business, rarely do you want to tell people, don't come back to my business, right? So the world already thinks we're crazy. The second thing is, how many of us have been legally sued? Well, I say us. I mean, how many churches have been legally sued for pursuing church discipline? Many, many churches are sued for this very process. So it's a, it's a dangerous, it's uncomfortable. Um, you could get legally engaged. Or what about slander? I mean, how many people, if they faced church discipline in this church, would run off to the next church down the road and badmouth the church they just come from? Pretty common. In fact, we see that all the time. So it's not comfortable. It's not fun. In fact, I know many pastors that avoid this part altogether. They just don't do it. But what does that mean? That means we are not following Jesus Christ. We are disobedient to what Christ just said. Because listen to what he said. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. That's pretty harsh. Tell the congregation. 
How could we, as ministers of the gospel, as the, the keepers of the word of God, deny to do something that is strictly commanded in God's word? We can't. We are required to do what he says, even if it's uncomfortable. But that's why I think the church in America has begun to become so unholy, because no one wants to deal with church discipline. And if they do do church discipline, what happens next? That person will run off to another church. It's very easy. There's so many churches to choose from with great preachers. So in step three, we are told that after attempted intervention on the part of one or two witnesses, then you are to report to the church. Now, the word tell here is different than the word in 15. So if you look at 15, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. Well, here in 17, tell the church, it's a different word. And you don't get that in the English because we don't have these nuances sometimes. But this word is really more of a judicial word. So the word tell here in 15 is more of a confront or convict or show them their fault. Whereas in 17, it's more of a judicial bring witness against this person. And some translations will have it uh, a little bit more understood. So what do we do? What does it mean? Typically, this would be mean taking it to the elders or the leadership of the congregation. That doesn't mean I'm going to say, okay, does anybody have church discipline matters they want to deal with today? And you walk up and announce, Augie did this, right? No, we're not going to do that. You take it to the elders. The elders then will investigate the matter. And that's how this process works. So just like he talks to Peter and tells him he gave him the keys, so also do we as the church have certain uh, responsibilities. So if those one or two witnesses are not elders, then the elders need to be informed. Always there's a, a varying amount of time, right? Because the elders may feel like we need to go talk to that individual one-on-one -on -one or four-on-one -on -one or whatever we want to do. And we go and we talk to that person and investigate the matter. So this is a long process. This is not a quick, all right, 10 minutes later, we're kicking this person out of, the, out of this joint, right? We're, we're bouncers and we're not getting to the bottom of it. No, we get to the bottom of it. The goal is always restoration of a brother or sister in Christ. That's the goal. Every time we do church discipline, it's restoration. It's, it's for reconciliation. It's not to remove. That's not the goal. But it is a part of it. So let me give you an example. I don't know if many of you were paying attention to the news, but there was a man who was part of a youth group at a church, and it was later on a member that went up and shot a bunch of Asian massage parlors. He went in there and he just shot a bunch of people. He was a member of this church. What do you think church discipline would look like? Would there be one person that goes and talks to him to see why he did it? Or would there be swift action? Would there be bringing it to the church? Listen, one of our members went and did this horrific crime. We now have to decide what we're going to do with him. We want to remove him from our body. This is not a representative of who we are in Christ. And that's what that church did. They ended up excommunicating him or removing him from the roles. And this is important because the world will look at us a certain way. And if we are not practicing what we preach, then what's our message? Our method, message is garbage if we do not practice what we preach. So the church is encouraged to reach out and encourage repentance. So let's go ahead and look at it. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. These are pretty loaded terms. If you were a Hebrew listening to this, you would say, what do I got to do to these people? I got to treat them like undesirables. No one likes a tax collector. No one likes the Gentile at this time. So what are you supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to treat them like an unbeliever like a non-Christian, which means you witness to them. You ask them to repent of their actions. You call them to repentance. But it does not mean that you go hang out with them. You're not going golfing, hanging out, affirming the sin of that person. You are calling them to repentance. Every time you run across each other, you're like, have you repented of your sin yet? That's pretty harsh, but that's what's being asked of you 
as a church. It's a heartfelt request for repentance, but they don't even listen to the church. And so that's where we get to step four, the remove or restore. So after announcing it to the church, which often leads to removal for a time with the hope of restoration. So we have frequent warnings about certain persons that need to be publicly admonished and avoided. So that's pretty harsh. This is harsh for, for our American ears, isn't it? You, you're telling me we have to tell someone not to come to church. So let's go ahead and look at it. Romans 16, 17. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you learned. Avoid them. How do you avoid someone that comes to church with you? You remove them. They cannot come to church if they are creating divisions and obstacles. 2 Thessalonians 3.14, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. That's pretty heavy. So these are talking mainly about false teachers, but also those who commit sin. Our passage says if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector. In our modern terminology, we would say let him be like an unbeliever or a non-Christian. For us, that does mean typically we say come to church. You're not a member. You don't get voting privileges. You don't have certain requirements and responsibilities, but we want you to hear the gospel. We want you to be convicted of your sin and to turn back to God. But right now you're choosing the world over the word. And so that's what we're, we're encouraging. Because many times they'll just remain unrepentant, rejecting even the church. And we don't want to give them false assurance. We don't want them to think that they are saved when they are living in apostasy, when they are living in sin. So there's a, a fact that sin is false teaching, um, and there's a real rejection that takes place. 2 John 10, 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your home and do not greet him, for the one who greets him shares in his evil work. That's pretty heavy. So I want to look at a quick biblical case study as we wrap up. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13, we have a story. And Paul is writing to them, ashamed of them. The people in Corinth had a certain person in their church. And this person was sleeping with his father's wife. So probably his stepmom. So a, a man was sleeping with his stepmom in the church. And he says, and you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and removed from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. The one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, Hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So this man who is sleeping with his stepmom is condemned. He says, cut him out of the congregation. Send him out. Hand that one over to Satan. That's pretty heavy. So that his spirit may be saved. You see the purpose though? is not to destroy him, but for his redemption. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as intended you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But I actually wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside. God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. That's a heavy, heavy statement, isn't it? 
Because all of us, at some point, fell into one of these categories, didn't we? Some of us have been verbally abusive. Some of us have been drunkards. Some of us have been idolaters. That means we treasure things more than we treasure Christ. Some of us have been greedy. Some of us have been sexually immoral. And we are told not to associate with anyone who does such things. So what's the difference? The difference is repentance. Those of us who have fallen into these things have asked God to forgive us, and we have sought repentance, confession and repentance. What has not happened in this case is this man is just doing it. He's sleeping with his stepmom, and he's loving it, and he doesn't care what anybody thinks, and the church is actually letting it happen. And Paul is warning very strictly that this should not be so. If you don't have church membership, you cannot do anything about this. You can't. You have been, you're full of unleavened bread. You are, or leavened bread, whatever, whichever, whichever way you want to go. You're full of what needs to be cut out. You have the cancer within you. You cannot cut it out. So Paul warns this church in Corinth because they are not removing those that are visibly and habitually living in wickedness. So that doesn't mean that I go over to your house and I start checking on your DVD selection and looking at your search history. That's not what this is about. This is the visible, habitual actions that are caught within a congregation. Are you purposely living in sin and being wicked and boasting about it, corrupting the whole church? They preached against it, didn't they, in Corinth? They were against it. They, they preached on hell. They preached on Satan, but they didn't do anything about it. And that's what Paul is warning them. He says, what happened? So... They didn't take any actions. So I want to I give you a good story, a good ending. What happened to the man that they removed and handed over to Satan? Which is what you do when you remove someone for church discipline. Second Corinthians, so he writes another letter. If anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of you. This punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person. Who do you think he's talking about? The sexually immoral person has now experienced great pain by being removed from the congregation. He is no longer part of that family. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. I wrote for this purpose, to test your character, to see if you are obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I do too, for what I have forgiven. If I have forgiven anything, it is for your benefit in the presence of Christ. Did you see what just happened? He said, not only should you welcome this guy back in now because he is sorry, he has confessed and repented, but you should reaffirm your love for him. You should say, you are still part of our family. Welcome back. You are, you are here with us. So if someone gets excommunicated or removed from the roles, that doesn't mean they're hopeless. It just means if they live in sin and they continue in it, they're going down a very bad path. What I tell my children, it will not go well for you, is what I tell them when they are doing something wrong. It will not go well for you. You are living in danger. Oops, I just turned my thing sideways. Well, we're... So, we have a clear methodology on how to deal or handle church disputes and problems within the church. And we have a goal, which is to have a restored and holy membership that is growing in love and worship and obedience to Jesus Christ. Membership is, of course, important to this, since you, how can someone be handed over to Satan if they are not even members in the first place? This is why membership is so important, friends, is so that we can be obedient to Christ. Removal from roles or excommunication from the church rarely means you are not allowed to come to church and learn about God. It just means you do not belong to our church family until you turn away from your, your wicked ways by confession and repentance. Now, there are rare cases where we would have to prevent someone from staying or coming back for safety reasons, right? There are certain reasons why, for safety, we cannot have someone come back, or even for false teaching. Unrepentant false teaching is a means and a reason why we would say you cannot be here because you're purposely trying to divide the church. But our goal is always restoration in the family. Kind of like the prodigal child. We want to run to them and embrace them when they turn back from their ways. So 
this series, we have seen that church membership matters. In fact, meaningful church membership matters. And the church belongs to Christ. And we have seen that Christ is the authority of the church. He determines what the structure of the church looks like, and he he determines the function of the church. So we, as blood-bought sinners belonging to a local body of believers, mean that we have to be essentially involved in church. Church is essential. At times, it seems like the church has lost its way, and wolves have begun to tear it apart from the inside out, not unlike the churches that Paul wrote Timothy about. This man... Hymenius and Philetus, they had teaching, and he said they, they spread like gangrene. Have you ever seen a, a leg that's been infected? That's what happens when certain people are not removed. 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, bearing this inscription, The Lord knows those who are His. Does the Lord know who are His? Who is God's? Who belongs to Christ? And let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. That's the the essence of this section. If you are in wickedness right now, if you are living in unrepentant sin, now is the time to repent, to to confess it. And there are are people that are willing to help uh, work through that with you. So this week, you have something to consider. Your role in Christ's kingdom. Do you stand on the firm foundation? Or are you calling on the name of the Lord, but in your wickedness? Or are you turning from that wickedness? Do you run hard after Jesus Christ? Is he what you chase? I want you to consider coming to our new members class on August 8th for the first step in joining our church family, or even just learning more about our church. You'll hear the um, testimonies. You'll hear our uh, statement of faith. You'll see our bylaws. You'll see our values. And we'll talk about membership a little bit more, and you'll look at our covenant, what it means to become a member of our local body. It means you are covenanting, kind of like in a marriage ceremony in many ways, and you are joining a family of believers for a reason. Now, here's the deal. I don't say this often, but if you are not serious, if you are not serious about being part of this church's mission, don't come. Don't come to the membership class because you need more time probably, but also We're getting serious here. I don't know if you've noticed this, but as we have grown, we have started taking on more ministries. And the more ministries we take on means we have a purpose. So this is not a cruise ship. Just because you love my preaching is not a reason for you to stay here and get fat. You are not here for being on a cruise ship. You are here to be on a battleship, or better yet, an aircraft carrier, to be launched into combat. That's what we're here for, guys, to fight and spread Christ's kingdom. So I don't want anyone coming here trying to get fat on what I have to teach or preach, okay? I want you to be here, and I want you to be serious, and I want you to be committed to following after Christ, because this is serious. And I don't want to have to remove someone who does not believe in Jesus Christ because they said they believed in Jesus Christ, yet were not fully in Him, okay? Make sense? That's just my passion. I think it's what Scripture teaches, and I hope that you can be on board with a full-on mission. Next year, we are focusing on the church in the city. How can we engage Sierra Vista in a unique and special way as Sierra Vista Baptist? In August, we're going to start small groups, home groups, really. The first, There's going to be one in Sierra Vista and one in Hereford. If you are interested in a home group, we will have sign-up sheets next week. I want you to sign up and get part of a home group. If you're part of a home group, that means you're going to be studying last Sunday's sermon. So we're going to start in Joshua on Sunday, and then we'll have home groups. And you'll, just, you'll start to learn how to apply it together. You'll be a little missional community in your neighborhood. That means you can invite your neighbor to this home group. Understand? So that's why I'm, I want you guys to be involved, and I want you to be committed. I want you to be involved. Um, God is doing great things at Sierra Vista Baptist. We, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but we've had to buy more chairs. I don't know if you've noticed, but we had to get some classroom space. I don't know if you've noticed, but we had to figure out what to do with kids. Things are growing pretty fast here. And so to be on board means you have to be committed. I don't want any part-time National Guard soldiers. No no offense, National Guard. I I don't want citizen soldiers. I want full-time members of the body of Christ involved at our church. 
And if we have to cut down a little bit to become a much more effective unit, then that's what we're going to have to do. And if that's not for you, if you just want to sit and be comfortable somewhere, this is not the church for you. There are other churches in this community that will allow you to come and sit. But you have to be involved in men, especially men. I'm, I'm, I'm begging you. I am pleading with you. Step up. We need men more than ever. I don't know if you know this, but our women ministry has taken off. There's all sorts of stuff for the women around here. We got like three or four Bible studies just for women. We don't have anything for men. Why is that? It's because I can't do it all. I'm not going to lead every men's Bible study. I want to be a part of it. I want to be fed, and it's not hard to do. So men, um, this is a challenge to you. If you are called of God to be a man after God's own heart, you need to learn to step up. Small groups or home groups is a great way to start. Maybe the small group leader will let you teach a couple times to see where you are. And as we get to know you, you have to be a member. You have to be a member for a certain period of time. But we want you, and we need you, and we need men to step up in our communities. All right? So that's, that's a little bit more than I wanted to tell you, but that's what we've got. So let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, as your word speaks truth, I pray that what we have read today, what we have studied today, and what has been preached today has been truth. That people would be convicted of their wickedness and turn, and turn to Christ. Christ alone, who is our Savior, who is the one thing that we should have joy fully in. Father, I pray that you would increase the joy of everyone here as they become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. God, I pray for our men in our community and our church that we would become men of valor, that we would stand up and that we would be men of gospel witness. Father, I know that there are so many things that can distract us and pull us away from the purpose of being men in the church. Father, I know that there are our, our households, we know that our, our work and everything else can pull us away, Father, but I pray that men would pick up just one or two men to disciple, that they would be involved in the lives of other men, and the bond of faith would strengthen in our church. Lord, I pray that you would give us a, a community that we could reach. Father, show us who Sierra Vista Baptist needs to, to communicate with and to share the gospel with. Lord, we thank you for the, the gift of your church. We thank you for the beautiful bride of Christ that we can celebrate being a member of, that we can come and worship in. Father, what a glorious truth. Father, I'm humbled that I can even be a part of this church family. I thank you for the members, and I thank you for those that have attended faithfully, those who are seeking to become members, that you would work in their lives to, to holiness, that we would be a people pursuing holiness. Help us to be an aircraft carrier that sends men and women into combat for the kingdom that we're not sitting around getting comfortable and fat on, on, and being lazy and being entertained. God, we need you to, to do this work. We cannot do it on our own. In Jesus' beautiful name, all God's people said, amen.